Well, as you can tell by my voice tonight, uh, the spirit is willing, but the vocal cords are weak. So prayers would be appreciated as I get my way through this. It doesn't hurt. It's just my annual, semi-annual sinusitis. It's just my problem, but I'm sorry that you have to listen to a raspy voice tonight. So as we come tonight to James chapter 5 in the next installment, just to remind ourselves where we were two Sunday nights ago. In James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, three quick highlights to give us an introduction to where we are tonight, from where James is continuing these theological threads between these passages. Number one, he's writing to an audience that is being mistreated and feeling the impact of living in a sinful and fallen world. The laborers are being mistreated and have very little human recourse. Number two, in the midst of being treated unjustly, he calls his audience, those being mistreated, not to rise up and take revenge and take matters into their own hands against their oppressors, but to cry out. And third and finally, and we see this in verse 6 of James chapter 5, to cry out to the righteous person. Discussed last time how I go back and forth on whether this should be capitalized, the capital R righteous, capital M man, as some uh, translations put it. They don't capitalize it, but again, referring to the innocent one throughout scripture. Well, James continues on that thought into the verses tonight, beginning in verse 7. And what he does for us is he gives us clear examples of what does that look like? It's one thing to state the fact of being patient. It's another thing to illustrate it in real life. As he often does, James will interweave doctrinal teaching and everyday illustrations and examples of what it looks like in our human experience, addressing issues not only faced back then, but facing in our world today. Think about these questions that James is addressing. What would it look like to suffer injustice or mistreatment and not retaliate for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ? Why should I be patient? What is worth waiting for? How can I have perseverance? How can I entrust myself to the one who loved me and gave himself for me when it feels like my heart and my faith is being assailed from so many different directions? If I'm to be patient, why hasn't God given it to me yet? See, the voices and messages we see around us from Scripture are very different than those from our society today. Our world today will send us messages such as this. I can have, have whatever I want, and I can have it whenever I want it. I want everything, and I want it now. Or don't let anything get in the way of your personal desires and dreams. Into our hectic, nonstop world where we usually put ourselves first comes the call to be patient. And because I know you're human and you're here tonight or listening tonight, I know that you struggle with patience. James is returning to one of his opening thoughts woven throughout his letter. If you turn back to chapter 1, this is what he says in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
It's the same word that we use here for patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the root for patience here in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and well, as well in chapter 5, that we translate patience can also be translated as endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, perseverance. See, what James is going to do is he's going to give us three illustrations to show what it's like to have patient perseverance. Because I know every one of you is like, why don't you just give me the 10 steps to a more patient life? The Bible gives us something better. The Bible gives us Jesus. The Bible gives us grace. And what it does, it shows us that there's other humans just like us who've gone through this. And here they are. We're first going to look at the patient farmer. Next, we'll look at the long-suffering ministry of the prophets. And third, what James points to is the steadfast Job. These are not just mere examples, but a call for patient perseverance as they looked ahead to something beyond themselves. So again, the patient farmer, the long-suffering prophets, and the steadfastness of Job. Now, first of all, the patient farmer. I know because I'm preaching at 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia, not many of us are called to be farmers by profession. And I have to admit that I already killed two tomato plants this year because I did not water them enough in the excessive heat. So I'm glad we know something about farming besides personal experience and success. But even if you don't have the proverbial green thumb, you know that there are some things that we can draw from from this text about a farmer's need for patience. The first aspect of why a farmer needs patience is because it's here in this verse where it says, expectingly looking forward to the early and late rains. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. So this call to be patient uses a farmer, but why? Well, one reason is because coming off of the previous verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, he's just defended these laborers who work in the field, who have been defrauded. And this audience, unlike us, would have this intimate knowledge of this agricultural analogy. But I think we know that all things in the created order are from God's hand and God's blessing. They are under his control. We are so dependent upon God, so many times we are basically helpless. And yet in our world, we're told that we're self-sufficient and we have everything together. Well, if you saw the news this week, we are still dependent upon rain. In fact, in India, which exports 40% of the world's rice... And the primary staple of three billion people today has lost most, the most rice fields it has had lost due to excessive rains. We are still dependent upon God and his goodness, and the rain still affects us. You see, rain in the scriptures is controlled by God and is often seen as a sign of God's blessing. Paul in Acts chapter 14 talks about how God sends his rain showers, his blessings on both the righteous and the unrighteous. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 23, Joel writes this, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given, catch this, the early rain for vindication, 
and has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rains as before. You see, this region around Jerusalem and surrounding Palestine was very dry. It was a very arid climate, even to today. Now, unlike Philadelphia, where we're used to frequent storms, unexpected storms, nor'easters, at any time throughout the year, that region primarily has two rainy seasons, two distinct waves, if you will. The early, or autumn, rains happen around the planting of the crops, and it's needed to germinate the seed. The later rains, which happen in the spring, happen right around harvest, or right before harvest, so that when it's that last push to get the, the plants, the crops, to their ripeness. See, James wants us to consider, do I look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says here in verse 5-7, until the coming of the Lord with the same intensity that the farmer looks to the rain to sustain his crops. Number two, as we look at the farmer, as we look patiently, or not so patiently as is often the case, we are called to establish your hearts. Look in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, we noted that those, that passage echoes the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This spiritual truth that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Likewise, James is connecting these two kind of views of the heart. Look in chapter 5, verse 5. He says that those who are the extortioners, the, 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 the rich people who are holding back wages, they are fattening their hearts as in a day of judgment. However, what he says in chapter 5, in this verse, in verse 8, to establish your hearts, to be fixed firmly on the hope that is in Jesus Christ. This is how Paul echoes it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience and joy. You see, it's a setting of the Christian's will, Deliberately, this setting of the heart, establishing the heart to do what God says, but also to look in faith to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the farmer must, and I'm in Philadelphia, so I know you'll get this reference, he must trust the process. When it comes to the growth of his crops, he knows that he has to plow, he has to plant the seeds, he has to wait for them to germinate, they have to sprout. He has to care for them, and then ultimately, he's looking in faith to the harvest. So we too must trust with with patience what the Lord is doing with us and look for his coming. Thirdly, about the farmer, as we look, hopefully patiently, we are called not to grumble. Look in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us because Scripture, throughout Scripture, 
and our daily lives can attest to the fact that when we are called to have patience, when we are called to wait on God's timing instead of our timing, when things are not moving according to our timetable, our natural human reaction is to grumble and to complain when we don't get what we want on our, in our timing when we want it. See, James is quick to caution against this. And I think it addresses really one of, the, one of the illusions of modern society, that we can speed up or make everything easy or convenient about our existence. You look at some of the commercials, some of the ads, some of the products that are being offered today. It's all about making your life quicker so you don't have to wait and be patient. But as we know, this is not always the case. We've all experienced the promise of technology that is said to make our life easier until there's that glitch and it takes so much work to fix it. You see, as James is seeking to show, we learn about God and ourselves when we have to wait on him. So I need to ask, as individuals, as a church, How much time do we spend waiting for the early and the late rains of God's provision? James is reminding us that as humans, there is so much that is out of our control. Jesus says, you cannot even add one minute to your life. You can't control the hairs on our head. So what can we really control? There's only so much we can actually do for ourselves. It's a reminder, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, when he's addressing these deep-seated divisions in this church where the congregation is following various leaders, he's quick to point out an agricultural analogy to say that the work of God in the church is from God himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says this. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, it's so easy for us to lose sight of the essential and the important that there is a future day that we are called to be patient for. And that's why James is building up to this letter for these final words that talk about the end, not only because it's the end of the letter, because he's reminding us on where our vision should be. We sometimes get so caught up in the present and bound by the past that we forget about the true eternity. So that's the farmer. Farmers, their life is waiting. Their life is looking ahead. Yes, they do the daily task, but they acknowledge that this is out of their hands. They need the help from God to make this happen. Second illustration is the long-suffering prophets. Look again at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, this is such a broad category. Why does James include the prophets? Well, it might be helpful to give a few brief sketches on this. And if you turn back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 11... This can be found on page uh, 1008 if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews 11 talks about those who persevered in this world, who lived by faith and not by sight. 
And this is what it says, in, uh, beginning in verse 32. After describing all of these other people who have been called out for faith, what more shall I say? For time would tell, fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. So there it is, the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now, if he just ended there, we would say, why is that so hard? That's great. This is all good stuff. But he continues, the writer does. In verse, um, middle of verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And this is the verse I want to come back to, verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Boy, what a job description. But look again at verse 37. I kind of want to highlight three quick prophetical sketches. Verse 37 says, they were stoned. The prophet Isaiah, uh, sorry, excuse me, that's next. The prophet Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because of accounts in the Old Testament book as well as the book of Lamentations. After repeatedly calling God's people to repent and turn from their sins, at the end of the book of Jeremiah, there's one last sin. They refused to listen to God and went to Egypt against God's commands. For his life of suffering, we are told by Tertullian, who lived around 200 AD, it was in Egypt that Jeremiah was stoned by his own people. To keep bringing the word of the Lord to a stubborn people and dying for it, day after day would require patient perseverance looking for the day of the Lord, which is a common theme in the prophets. So that was who was stoned. Again, not the only one, but just as an example of a prophet who was stoned. Secondly, they were sawn in two. The prophet Isaiah had an impossible task from God. He was told to go to the people and they would hear him, but they would never listen. They would see, but they would never perceive with their hearts and turn and be healed. According to Justin Martyr, who also lived in the second century, Isaiah was sawn in two. He was put into a hollow log and sawn in two with a wooden saw, no less. To live and die in such a way would require patient perseverance, looking toward the day of the Lord. The next phrase and final phrase from verse 37, they were killed with the sword. The book of Matthew, just one example, is told of the, John the Baptist who came and announced the way for Jesus. And as he proclaimed, he was arrested by Herod, the Tetrarch. And again, I don't know if this is the one that was in mind when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, but Herod, over a rash promise at a wedding feast, 
beheaded with the sword, John the Baptist, as Jesus himself will say, probably one of the greatest prophets, the last prophet before Easter, when Jesus was vindicated and rose from the dead. To live the life that John led in the desert, eating locusts and honey, and died the death that he died, would require patient perseverance as he looked for the day of the Lord. And if you remember, there's that that part in Matthew 14 where he actually sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you really the one? Or should we expect another? This isn't going according to my timetable. And Jesus says this, but we need to look at John's confession in John chapter 3, verse 36. And this is the call for all of us. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. If this is how the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, who glimpsed from afar the person of the work of Jesus Christ on that side of the cross lived, how much more should we on this side of the cross live in persevering patience? So not only do we have the farmer, we have the prophets, But the third illustration that James gives us in this chapter is the uh, illustration of Job. So back to James chapter 5. He writes this in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and how you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, if you've never read the book of Job, or if you have, you know that it takes careful attention, because nearly half of the book is bad theology. It's not bad theology uh, because it's from God, but because when it comes from the mouth of people like Job's three friends. See, Job suffered great calamity, losing nearly all his possessions, and his body was racked with boils. His wife encouraged him to curse God and die. And these three closest friends that he dialogues with for the, almost the entirety of these 43 chapters told him to just admit you're wrong and maybe God will heal you. Job, though, said, I am innocent. It is not because of my sin, it is because the Almighty has afflicted me. And rather than grumble and complain... Rather than put the blame on God as they were calling him to do, he instead sat in patience. Despite his grief and his pain, he waited. He established his heart. He cried out to God. And in one of the most revealing uh, sections of the book of Job, chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, He reveals that he's not just waiting, biding his time. He says this, as he establishes his heart towards the last day, he says this, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, at the end, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold another. Now, we're not told how long Job had to wait, because at the end of the book, things are restored to him, and he's made whole. But there is throughout this book a resolute, 
steadfastness. One Hebrew scholar points out in verse 27, it's actually very emphatic. He says, I, even I, will see him. This is the kind of looking to the future, looking to the eternity that James is having us look at in this present life. So what can give this sort of resolution of heart, this kind of patience for the farmer, for the prophets, and for Job? Well, it's looking ahead, not just vaguely into the future, but to this day of the Lord. Now, theologians call this study eschatology, from the Greek word eschaton, which means last. And it's not some guy in a white robe with a long beard holding up a sign saying, the end of the world is near. That's not eschatology. What it is, it is this looking forward to the end when Christ will restore all things. Now, throughout this series on James, I've made many connections with the Sermon on the Mount. There are many connections that James has in the back of his mind. Matthew 5 to 7, because this is where Jesus taught them on the mountainside. But this section in particular actually echoes another section of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is known as the Olivet Discourse, because it's a discourse, it's a teaching that takes place on the Mount of Olives when Jesus says, this is what's going to happen at the end. Just very briefly, I'll throw these references out there and you can consult them on your own. But in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 13, and in James chapter 5, verse 10, there is this call to persevere in spite of suffering and persecution that will come. In Matthew 24, verse 13, and in in James chapter 5, verse 8, there's this admonition to stand firm, to establish your hearts. Matthew 24, verse 30, James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. This call to persevere in the light of the return of Christ. And finally, Matthew chapter 24, verse 33. That at the very end is, the end is at the very gates. It's at the door, if you will. James, in verse 9, as we just read, says the judge is standing at the door. See, James is picking up on this to say that in your current struggles, in my current struggles, in the trials of life, do not forget to set your eyes on the things that are coming in eternity where Christ has already won. C.S. Lewis often discusses this idea of time, and I like how he, he does this. And the Christian's attitude toward time. And I found this helpful. Maybe you will too. He said we need to contrast the view of eternity, which is good, and a view of the future, which is not so good. See, Lewis says, uh, and this is actually from Screwtape Letters, is that a view of eternity is the biblical view that has in mind the daily cross the daily grace, this daily, there is a day coming when things will be set straight. A view of the future in a vague sense, in a mere human view of the future, is, quote, nearly all the vices are rooted in the future because they are speculative and self-focused. 
We don't even know what this week will bring for us. And yet we enter sometimes so confidently into the future. Lewis is saying, rather than look to the future, look to eternity, which is sure and firm. So as we heard these calls of focusing our eyes on the end, and not just on the end, but the person who stands at the end, just a few uh, challenges for this week as we enter a new work week. First of all, we need patient perseverance because the gospel of Jesus is working even when we can't see it. Let's face it, we sometimes get discouraged when God is not moving at our timetable. We can think, God, why am I here? I should be here. Whether it's with my life stage, my profession, whatever it may be, I need to be somewhere else. I don't want to be patient. And yet, God is working. When we read news articles and see what's going on in the world, and we say, what is going on? This is crazy. God is working. Remind ourselves of Mark chapter 4, when Jesus himself ties these elements of James together and to say about, again, this agricultural analogy. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. There's that farmer again. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Now again, we know the biological botany answer, but still it's a marvel that seeds do this. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, he at once puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And throughout scripture, this picture of the end of the world when Jesus comes again is pictured as a harvest. But don't miss what Jesus is saying. The farmer does what he can but entrusts the rest to God. Will you do that this week? Second, the gospel of Jesus will come in reality despite present injustices and discouragements. And I'm sure, I'm certain that there are some tonight who are extremely discouraged. The daily grind of living in a sinful and fallen world. Broken relationships that we long to make whole, but we don't know how to do it. Our broken societal systems that are clearly not working. We need to remember that there is a day coming when things will be set straight. Look at the words of certainty from this passage. In verse 7, there is this coming of the Lord. In verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is imminent. Not according to a calendar view of time, necessarily, but it is the next and final phase of history. It will happen. And in verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. It is going to happen. As we heard this morning from Pastor Liam about the Bema seat, the judgment seat, that Jesus, as he stood under Pilate to be judged, will one day take the rightful and perfect Bema seat. Now, we have to admit that we live in a time when people don't accept this. And we talk about this and they say, you Christians, that's kind of weird. That's kind of that's crazy. You know what? Peter told us about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's what he says, 2 Peter chapter 3. 
knowing that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I don't know about you, but I know I've had people ask me that. Why is it taking Jesus so long? Is he really coming? Do you think he's coming? Well, again, this is how Peter continues. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when someone says that to you next time, you can say, it's actually for your sake, possibly, that Jesus has not yet come. Third, the gospel of Jesus gives us fortitude, patience, and perseverance as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Just to clarify, the illustration of the farmer, the prophets, and Job are there to say other humans with flesh and blood went through things like you, maybe worse than you, maybe not as worse than you, but they went through this and still persevered. But we're not to emulate them. We're not to follow their example per se. They were looking to a future salvation that was not about them. It was about that day that they were looking forward to and that day that we look forward to and the one who will restore all things in that day. For the prophets and for Job especially, life was only attained by brokenness by patience, a death to themselves, to their agenda, to their timetable. And they placed their reliance upon a God of grace, awaiting his glorious day that we will join with them where there is true life. See, Christianity alone can say, I cannot find the truth within my own strength, my own attempts at patience, I need the work of another on my behalf. The one who is righteous, the one who is just, and the one who is loving. And the one who says, I will give you my spirit so that by my spirit you will produce the fruit of the spirit. Like the farmer, the precious fruit. The precious fruit of the Christian life is the fruit of the spirit. And one of those fruits is patience. It's not something we work up. There's not that 10 steps to better patience. I wish I had that. But it's a working towards looking to Christ. Cultivating that work in my life of the Holy Spirit's patience as I go through the struggles of my life and look to him by faith. I'd ask you again to look at your bulletin tonight at the larger catechism that we read. Now again, the catechism tries to take these various sections of scripture and put them into a succinct statement. And if you have time this week, if you want something to do for a Bible study, this is available online. The uh, Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism all have scriptural references and footnotes where they tell you where you got it from. They got it from. So basically, if you want to this week, consider this. Look at the scripture they use to support this claim. But listen to this again. 
as we go from here and live this week in patient perseverance? Can we fall away from Jesus Christ? That's what it says. True believers, by reason of the unchangeable love of God and his decree and covenant to give them perseverance, their inseparable union with Christ, his continual intercession for them, and the spirit and seed of God abiding in them can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. By God's grace, may we do so by patient endurance this week as God strengthens us to do so. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches in Christ Jesus, your Son, you would cultivate your spiritual fruits in our lives, especially the fruit of patience. As the Holy Spirit comforts and guides our often grumbling hearts, let us trust in and rely in your grace alone so that you would receive the glory from our lives. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.